You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> It's Tuesday, January the 12th, 2021. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ed Harrison, and I'm talking to Peter Bookvar of Bleakly Advisors. But before we get to Peter, let's go to Haley Drazen with the news of the day. Hey, Ed. Markets seesawed between small gains and losses on Tuesday. There's been a short-term tone shift in the markets, with the focus now turning to growth and inflation. With Treasury yields rising for a seventh consecutive session on expectations of increased government spending under the incoming Biden administration, the 10-year note yield hit pre-pandemic highs, up around four basis points on Tuesday. The 2s 10s yield curve spread is at its steepest since mid-2017. Again, investors are betting on additional stimulus, spurring more bond issuance and higher yields on longer maturity treasuries. The support from rising yields has so far trumped worries that the extra spending in the U.S. could trigger a faster rise in inflation. A question to think about, could rising rates prompt the Fed to take action to prevent yields from rising even further. Yield curve caps have become a discussion point. Technically, 10-year yields could rise to 1.5% or so and still be trending lower as the Fed and even global central banks can't afford significantly higher rates given the amount of debt outstanding and the projected issuance of debt under the incoming Democratic administration. This move could be signaling a period of higher volatility volatility and could lead to a correction in last year's tech sector market leaders. Value and cyclical names might take the lead with the thought that vaccinations lead to an improving economy and an end to lockdowns too. Zoom, for example, filed with the SEC on Tuesday to sell $1.5 billion of common stock. The company has obviously benefited a lot from the work-from-home trend this year, and the stock rallied more than 760% from where it closed out in 2019 at around $68 to its intraday peak of around $588 on October 19th. But since then, it has slid about $250 or more than 40% in just the last Last three months. Meanwhile, the dollar ticked down a bit on Tuesday after posting its biggest three-day rise since September. New COVID lockdown measures across Europe combined with rising yields have pushed the dollar higher, but the dollar could resume its decline as stimulus spending and vaccine rollouts brighten the global economic outlook. Back to you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Haley. And welcome, Peter. Happy New Year to you. Ed, thanks a lot. You too, my friend. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, we uh, we sort of uh, went over this right before I was telling you that I almost don't even need to prepare because I get your great, uh, you know, investment newsletters and I see what you're thinking about and I have a good sense of where we want to go. 
But I kind of want to frame the issue because the last time we spoke was before the new year and things might have changed since then. L let me give you a, a synopsis of how I was uh, taking what you were saying back then. You were telling me that basically a lot of the whole stuff is dependent upon the vaccine. You know, once we get the vaccine and when we did get the vaccine, basically we had light at the end of the tunnel that we were going to make it to the end of the tunnel. And that was that was largely supportive of asset markets. And when we got to that end of the tunnel, there was going to be pent up demand that was going to be positive. The uh, corollary to that is inflation, because that's going to be inflationary. The bottlenecks were inflationary. And uh, that's where you saw things uh, in November, December timeframe. What do you, first of all, is that an accurate depiction? And secondly, what are you seeing now that's different than what you saw back then? Now, that's a good synopsis. Uh, and just to, to at least narrow down one of the things that you mentioned about the pent-up demand. I mean, the pent-up demand is really going to be on the services side, the desire to go see a concert, to go to a baseball game, to go off a dinner, to go to a bar. That's where the pent-up demand is. We've already spent a lot of demand on the good side in 2020. I mean, once you renovate your kitchen, you're not going to re-renovate it because there's a vaccine. You just spent $38,000 for a car because you're no longer commuting to work by train. You're going to drive. Well, you're not going to do that again in 2021. You bought a laptop in 2020. You're not going to buy a new one in 2021. So the pent-up demand will be in the areas that people have been deprived of because of the shutdowns, the lockdowns. And, and that's where we're going to see a lot of the shift in spending go to. But I think overall, and, and, and what you had mentioned, is that I do expect inflation to continue to surprise on the upside. And I think that's going to be a big problem for the world's bond markets, which will eventually be a problem for high multiple, high PE stocks that have been levitated on uh, the premise that rates would stay low forever. Yeah, and, you know, uh, a good um, segue into that is uh, we talked about this yesterday, uh, Jack Farley and I, uh, he's uh, one of my colleagues here. And one of the things that we were talking about was this chart that Holger Shapitz, uh, who I don't know if you follow him on Twitter. He's a very good German uh, yeah. um, guy. And he had this chart that showed the FANG stocks going up and interest rates going up at the same time, uh, which I thought was very interesting because really you and I right now, we're about to talk about the opposite of that. I mean, that's essentially what I got from you is, is that at some point in time, you know, when these rates are rising up, or I should say to people who are watching me in the opposite direction, rates rising up in this direction, you know, Fang is not going to be happy about that. I mean, that's what I took away from you. Right. Well, you look at the Fang stocks, the Fang stocks really peaked on September 2nd. And Fang stocks have, have, have lagged even more once the tenure broke above 1%. Now, that's only five stocks. You add in Microsoft, you're talking six stocks. I do expect that scrutiny of high PE stocks to expand if this rise in the tenure continues. Uh, I think it's just inevitable. I mean, I, I, I feel like I've seen this movie so many times that when you get the initial rise in rates after a period of time of them being suppressed, you have some people saying, oh, everything's fine. Rates are rising for good reason. It means the economy is getting better. Uh, earnings will, will, will increase and we can pay higher for stocks. And then on the other side, you, will, you have to say, well, the only reason why 
stocks have done as well as they did is because rates were very low and it helped to rationalize paying a higher multiple. And one thing we have to understand is that a lot of this rate rise, nominal rate rise, has a lot to do with rising inflation expectations. So this is not just a rates are rising because growth is about to accelerate, which I actually do think it will because of, of the vaccine. But a lot of this also nominal rise in rates is the real side that's falling and inflation expectations that is rising, notwithstanding the past week where real rates have, have, have ticked up a little bit. Uh, so it's the rise in inflation expectations, which I think will be realized. And when we start to see real inflation rising this year, actual inflation rising this year, that will eventually clip uh, a lot of these high P stocks. We're trying to figure out at what level of the 10-year it matters. It's tough to say. But to your original point about FANG, it does seem that when the 10-year got above 1%, uh, those FANG stocks started to get impacted. Yeah. And, you know, uh, do you have a level uh, that you're thinking about that is a bogey, if you will, for when people start to reconsider their discount rates? I mean, uh, by the way, uh, Holger Schaefer, he had a, a, a he had a mantra that I've now copied. It's called it's the DCF stupid <laughs> because at some point in time, the DCF is going to make a difference in terms of the discount rate. Well, it, it, it's it's one of those questions that you're really not going to know the answer until you actually see it. Uh, I mean, I, I think when you look at the action today, when the 10-year this morning got to almost 119, that that was a, a drag on stocks. And then you had uh, a, a very good 10-year note auction, and you saw rally in treasuries, and the 10-year closed at around 113, 114, and the market sort of lifted. So just based on that, I would say that 120 to 125 will be sort of an initial um, spot to see how stocks respond. And then we'll have to go from there because it's impossible to know at what level. It's one of those things that you'll see, you, you know it when you see it. Right. And you, to, let me frame this uh, for a second for people because I think what you're saying to me sounds like the difference between inflation and reflation because when i i think about it i think about nominal gdp growth uh as being when it increases that's very good for the economy that shows the economy is going well and earnings increase as a result of that increase in nominal gdp the real question is is what's the composition of that increase in nominal gdp is it that you know you're getting real gdp growth as a result of as you mentioned things like uh, the pent-up demand for services? Or is it that you're just getting inflation or both? And in the one case, that is uh, where things are good, real GDP is increasing, that's reflation. But in the other case, where you're just getting inflation, it really should not be making stocks go higher. You're absolutely right. It's, it's um, When you look at of what central banks around the world have done, what has given them license to do what they've done in their eyes has been this low level of inflation. Not only for central banks to cut rates and do QE and so on, but it's given license for investors to rationalize in their minds that, okay, who cares if we have a slow rate of growth, a slow rate of earnings, if the interest rate is low, well, then I can substantiate paying higher prices. So what upsets this whole apple cart is higher inflation. And I'm not talking about a few months of, of, of higher than expected inflation 
or uh, easy comps that we're going to see on a year-over-year basis in inflation in March, April, May. I'm talking about something that becomes more sticky, something that, that lasts um, more than a few months, and, and it's something that becomes you know, embedded in, in inflation expectations as well. That upsets everything. That, that, so that, that takes away sort of handcuffs central banks for them to respond to, to, to things. And, and almost the market sort of possibly could take over. I mean, there's this idea that the Fed and other central banks are just always in control and that they can, like a video game, can, can move around the pieces and, 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 and put interest rates exactly where they want them to be. And therefore, asset prices that are priced off that will go where the Fed wants them to go, and that's higher. But if you get inflation and the market starts to sort of revolt, which I think that the 10-year yield at the peak today in six trading days was up 26 basis points. So at essentially, the 10-year yield has tightened monetary policy by 25 basis points. Now, of course, the Fed says we're going to stay at zero, we're going to do QE, but it's the market that is beginning to speak up. And that voice will get louder, I believe, if inflation goes in the direction that I think it will as we progress through the year. You know, if I look at historical parallels, the closest that I come, you know, if I go, I rewind, the closest date I come to is December 2018. And, you know, that's a different circumstance because obviously the Fed was saying the economy is so good that it can withstand some rate hikes. So we're going to give them the rate hikes. And then at some point we got to a level that was too high for the market. But where I think that the similarity is, is you do get to a level that's too high for the market. And then the market puked all over the place. And the Fed was forced to decide, what are we going to do? At that particular time, they decided we're going to, you know, take everything into reverse and we're going to stop uh, raising rates and eventually start cutting rates, as it turns out. Uh, What is the Fed going to do now? If you get up to that magic level, 125, 125. 50, whatever it might be, and the market pukes all over the place, what's the Fed going to do? Well, it, it, it's amazing that we're, we're talking about how a 10-year yield at one and a quarter, one and a half can somehow disrupt things because that on an absolute basis is obviously so low. But when you multiply this massive amount of debt out there by even the smallest number, you end up getting a large number. And that's why it's, it, it, it's a very small uh, rate of change is most important in where interest rates go from here rather than the absolute level. So, you know, the knee-jerk response from people is, oh, if the 10-year yield goes up above a certain level, the Fed will just do yield curve control. Right. We, and that the Fed is already doing yield curve control. They've told you that the short end of the yield curve is going to stay pinned to zero through 2023. Well, that's essentially verbal yield curve control. Uh, they're doing massive amounts of QE, $80 billion a month of treasuries. And then you throw in the MBS uh, of another 40. That is a form of YCC on the short end. So they're doing it already. And, and, and keep in mind that, uh, that yield, curve, yield curve control is a lot easier said than done. And, and, and the one negative that I actually think that some people within the Fed understand is that it also ties their hands. Because once they lock themselves in to a situation like that, and, and yield curve control is a serious commitment uh, that, that, that needs that, that potentially they don't want to lock themselves into. So 
And, and, and when you think about it, if the Fed doesn't want higher long rates, then why root for 2% inflation? It, it makes no sense. If you're going to want 2% inflation, then you're going to have to tolerate higher long rates. That's going to reflect that 2% inflation. So I don't think the Fed is necessarily going to fight it. I think they actually want a steeper yield curve because we, we see the benefit that it, that it gives the banks. Uh, now, I, I think what gets the Fed to respond is not an absolute level of, of the long end. It's when the markets start to get upended by a certain level in the long end, because we know the Fed is reactive to markets. Just as you mentioned, December 2018, the reason why they backed off is because the markets had a hissy fit. It wasn't necessarily a direct impact on the economy. We had not seen that yet. It was the markets that that, that, that cried uncle. And, and Powell you know, gave them, again, another bolt of, of, of candy. So it'll be this time around when it'll be markets that, that get uneasy with a certain level of, of interest rates. And then the Fed will respond to that and say, hey, we're, 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 we got you. We'll, we'll do our best to control that, that rise in, in interest rates. But again, if the Fed is not tolerant of higher long rates, then they shouldn't be rooting for higher inflation. But, you know, in 2018, the Fed was saying, look, for all you guys who are saying we've got uh, we've got your back, we, the Fed, have got your back. That's not why we're doing this at all. What we're doing is, is we're dealing with uh, a tightening of financial conditions uh, and we see that financial conditions have tightened. It's not because the stock market went down. We're not targeting stocks uh, in this case. However, well, if they were to do this, they're one in, they're one in the sand. They would be saying that they're targeting. I mean, effectively, the Fed would be saying, by the way, yes, we have your back. I mean, how could they not say that? Uh, I mean, they would have no credibility on that. Well, credit spreads and the level of the stock market are the financial conditions. So when they say they're not targeting it, if they're going to respond to financial conditions, they're by definition responding to the markets. So the uh, Jay Powell, former uh, PE guy, uh, what does he look at more uh, specifically? Uh, earlier in the in the day, you were saying uh, we have a, a huge amount of debt, and Jay Powell's a PE guy. They use lots of debt. Is he more concerned about the backup in credit spreads, or is he more concerned about the stock market falling out of bed? Well, it, it's definitely a combination because they'll be one in the same. You'll get a, a tightening of credit spreads, or I should say, widening, uh, along with the stock market sell-off. That, in combination, will be that tightening of financial conditions that uh, the Fed will then want to try to relieve. But it's the Fed's policy that is easing financial conditions. You look at the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index; it's at a record low. Um, so it, it, it's it's this asymmetric policy. They don't care. When financial conditions get you know hog wild, crazy, and easy, they only respond when 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 the markets do uh, their their bidding. But getting back to the importance of where inflation goes, when inflation is low, the Fed can rationalize saving the markets. When inflation is higher, as I mentioned, it, it handcuffs them. So if you get a situation where you get higher inflation that upends the treasury market, that then negatively affects the stock market. Well, because of that higher inflation rate, 
what's the Fed going to do? And considering how much they are, are, are in already, uh, it could become a, a difficult situation for them. We'll have to see this, how this unfolds, but this is the potential risk, I think, for 2021. Uh, I'm optimistic that I'm going to do a lot of things this summer that I wasn't able to do last summer. But just as we learned in 2020, the economy is not the, the, the stock market. The stock market's not the economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. And, and you know, when you talk about inflation, I noticed that you're careful to say embedded for more than a few months. You don't say, you know, embedded for the long term. You're not saying necessarily that we're talking about runaway inflation that uh, goes on for five years and goes up to 10 percent or whatever. What kind of I mean, what I'm getting at is the difference between a long enough and sharp enough of a spike in inflation and inflation expectations that it has an impact on markets versus a embedded sort of cost push type of inflation that we had uh, during the stagflation of the 1970s. You're not talking about the second. It sounds like you're talking about the first. Well, I, I, I'm trying to take it one step at a time uh, and, 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 and sort of see how the, these initial phases of inflation go before we see how long lasting it is. I mean, I, 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 like to, I don't like to look at inflation as one thing. I, I try to break it down between services and, and goods. And pre-pandemic, services inflation was sticky and persistent at around 3% year over year if we look at the calculation within CPI. Rents, medical care, insurance, and other things consistently led to 3% services inflation. It was disinflation, deflation on the good side that kept the overall number relatively benign. Now we have a sharp rise in goods inflation relative to where it was because of uh, supply chain disruptions, spiking transportation costs, and rising commodity prices, and so on. So the question is, is whether that can sustain itself. And with the vaccine and the service side of the economy rebounding, do we get sort of that magic mix together that can lead to a cyclical rise in inflation? I'm of the belief that from a big picture, long-term thesis, there's always going to be goods deflation because mm -hmm. technology, we do things more productively and more efficiently. So over time, goods prices should continuously uh, at least flatline or go down. Services inflation, that unfortunately on the flip side has remained, as I said, sticky and persistent. I just think now we're going to get potentially a combination. And whether it lasts six months, 12 months, two years, three years, I don't know yet. But I just think that at least right now I'm focused on the trajectory and how that could upend the world's bond markets, particularly when $18 trillion worth of it are still trading below zero or yielding below zero, I should say. Right. And I think it's interesting uh, when you make the separation between goods and services inflation. Let's take a look at that on a go forward basis. Uh, goods inflation is something that potentially is transitory because of this pent up demand uh, for services uh, or, or, or sorry, uh, goods inflation 
is temporary because we're living through this period where you've pulled forward demand into goods. And when we get out of the vac into the vac post-vaccine period, that could go back down to where it was before, which was disinflationary slash deflationary. Well, that's, uh, that, that's what I'll be watching out for. Right. I still think that, that there'll be a higher level of goods inflation for, for the next year or two. Uh, I just have to see where services inflation goes because rents are a big part of of, of the CPI to use that uh, as a metric. And while rents are falling in New York and San Francisco and Chicago, which has lowered the rate of change year over year increase in rents, we're actually seeing sharp rises in rents in a lot of suburban markets and second tier markets. And that's something that I'll be watching, particularly with house prices rising at an annualized rate of six to eight percent. You're going to get a shift back for for first-time buyers back to renting again, which can then real reaccelerate re uh, rental incomes in the aggregate. I mean, our rental increases in the aggregate. So, when you look at some of the debates that are going on right now, a lot of people are talking about bubbles here and there. But you know, uh, stock market bubble, bond bubble. Uh, they're talking about overvaluations as a result of uh, price earnings, uh, mul uh, multiple expansion. Where do you see the biggest risks in the market as we speak? Well, the, the, the world's bond market is the biggest bubble in the history of financial markets. Uh, a negative yielding security, which was once an asset, but once you own it, is now a liability. I mean, that, that's the ultimate uh, Ponzi scheme bubble because uh, it's, it, it's, the, it's the ultimate hot potato asset. So the world's bond market is the biggest bubble ever. And then, of course, you have assets that are priced off these artificially low rates that become inflated, too. So no one here comes out alive if, if, and I emphasize if, that bond bubble somehow gets pricked. But that's the thing is that central bankers have inflated the bond bubble, but then they root for the thing that eventually pricks it, that being higher inflation. So that's why I think the, the, the inflation focus this year really needs to, 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 to be key for uh, any investor that, um, that is paying prices for whether it's, it's, it's a high level of stock, uh, a multiple in a stock, or whether it's you know, a Wayne Gretzky base of hockey card that, that went for you know, a few million dollars, well above where it was five years ago because it's a hard asset in, in, this, in the world of, of depreciating currencies and, and lower interest rates. You know, uh, two things before we go that I wanted to talk about, because uh, you wrote about this today, uh, the 10-year auction, uh, and you also wrote about uh, when does uh, rate rises, when do they matter? We've talked about that. But as I recall, in those pieces, uh, you talked about the negative interest rate uh, tax on savers in Europe actually moving down the curve. You know, at some point, it was, you know, um, five million uh, Swiss francs. You know, then you you go down, and now it's down to two hundred and fifty thousand Swiss francs that you have to have in an account before they give you the negative uh, interest tax. That they're passing on this negative interest rate uh, tax to you from the bank. Here's the question that I have. I mean, in terms of thinking about this, uh, if I am a first of all. The Swiss are basically saying, you know what, uh, we don't want to tax normal people. But if you have 250,000 Swiss francs in the bank account, you basically have so much money that you can't hide it under a mattress. 
we're going to tax you. Uh, and so therefore, you as an individual or a company, you're incentivized to get rid of that hot potato. And one of the ways to get rid of that hot potato is to move out of cash and move into financial assets. And in so doing, you would therefore increase the price of those financial assets. Isn't that what the central banks are trying to do? Well, I guess in part, they, they, they call it, um, I'm trying to think what, how they refer to it, is sort of this portfolio adjustment thing where, yeah, you, they try to scare you out of risk-free assets uh, into other things. But people don't necessarily, people look at the money they have in the bank very differently than they would their, their, their stock portfolio. I mean, there are different levels of volatility. One is a, a safety or a, or a savings vehicle. And one is a, a more speculative part of their portfolio. But it is, to your point, a tax. And, and that's why from day one, I thought negative interest rates was the, the dumbest idea in the history of economics, because it's a tax on capital that somebody has to eat. And initially, it was the banks that said, OK, we still need to park money at the ECB. We'll eat it. or the Swiss National Bank. Uh, then they started to pass it on to higher rates to consumers uh, in Sweden when they did it, that led to higher mortgage rates because they passed it on. And now the banks are trying to pass it on to depositors. So someone has to eat this. And But the problem is, is that central banks are so in deep with negative interest rates that they can't wake up and say, okay, uh, this is a bad idea. Uh, we don't want depositors to have to pay this tax. Or we're going to reverse negative interest rates. That's just not going to happen because they would blow up the, 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 the bond market in Europe. Um, so this is where you reach a point where monetary policy is, in my opinion, actually restrictive policy, not accommodative. Right. Going negative is restrictive policy. It kills the profits of your banks. Now it's, it's, it's forcing people to either pay the tax or stick money under their mattress. I don't necessarily think they're going to do dollar for dollar and put it into the stock market or, 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 or buy an expensive car with that. Uh, so they're going to eat it. Where someone's going to have to eat it, and money's going to come out of the banking. I mean, it's 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 just it's terrible when you think about where this has uh, has led, and, and we'll have to see if more banks make the announcement that UBS did, and whether they continue to lower that threshold because UBS doesn't want to have to pay that tax; they'd rather pass it on. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would uh, suggest that they will continue to lower it more and more. You know, if uh, if the yield curve doesn't steepen then you know their net interest margins are not going to go up and they're going to be forced to uh, make some money somewhere and that's the way to do it and and i think when you were talking about portfolios you were talking about uh, private portfolio preferences i remember that term right. people used to bandy about all the time that the fed is trying to get you to ch alter your your private portfolio preferences um mm -hmm. right. talk to me about the 10-year auction and it's being very good uh, what does that say? How temporary is that? Is this just a reprieve or do you think that that March higher in interest rates uh, into that 120, 125 range that you were talking about earlier is actually pretty much a, a done deal? It will happen. Well, I, I think long rates are going higher. So uh, I think today was just a reprieve that, you know, maybe it could last a little bit. Uh, when, when you see, as I mentioned, uh, a 26 basis point rise in the 10 year over six trading days, it brought out better demand because uh, people are seeing a sharp rise in yields to a level they haven't seen since, uh, since last March. 
but like I said, I think it's just a temporary reprieve. I, I think I think the long rates are, are going higher. I think they'll surprise to the upside, uh, both in the ten-year and I keep my eye on the thirty-year as well, because the thirty-year, as I think I've said to you before, is the furthest out on the curve and least manipulated and influenced by what the Fed does in the short ends. Mm-hmm. Right. And so uh, going forward, last question for you. What does that mean in terms of your recommendation to your clients in terms of asset allocation? Because on the one hand, you're relatively sanguine, relatively upbeat even uh, about the real economy over the medium term. But it sounds to me like you're pointing out some serious risks with inflation being chief among them. Right. Well, simplistically, cheap stuff is going to do better than expensive stuff. Uh, with within that cheap stuff, I'm still a, a bull on on commodity stocks, uh, bank stocks that'll benefit from that steeper yield curve. Uh, there's still plenty of cheap value stocks out there with nine, ten, eleven times P ratios, and I'm still pretty bullish on uh, um, uh, Asian stock markets. I think that um, uh, they're going to way outperform the U.S. in the years to come. And uh, within commodities, precious metals in particular, energy stocks, and agriculture. Bitcoin, anything on crypto? So my, my, my view on Bitcoin is I, I, I highly respect the thesis behind Bitcoin because I'm a bull on gold and silver and there's the same thought process. Limited supply, can't be printed away, non-fiat currency, a beneficiary of a weak dollar, uh, higher inflation and so on and so on. Um, my issue with Bitcoin is not the direction of it. I think it'll probably go higher along with gold and silver. I just don't, I'm not just not comfortable myself um, and, and how to value it and, and, and at what price uh, it should go to. And, and I, 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 I never have anything negative to say. It's just not my cup of tea uh, in terms of, of, of how to value it. I just, I'm more comfortable in gold and silver. And, and I obviously would have liked to own some Bitcoin relative to gold and silver, but I'm just as fine and I sleep fine at night uh, owning gold and silver instead. Excellent. Well said. And I think very diplomatic in, indeed. Uh, Peter, uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, Thanks, that's we will here. talk again soon. Yep. Yep. Thanks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.